Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 477. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Um, I'm joined this week by someone who got a lot of love in last week's episode. And while I'm on that, thank you for all the love for the uh, Jordan Gray episode last week. This week's guest is Lauren Patterson, who was another comedian I saw at the Fringe, who was another comedian who was nominated for the big Fringe Award, formerly the Perrier, now is it the Dave Comedy Award thing? But yeah, absolutely astounding show. As soon as I saw it, I wanted to talk to her on the podcast. And we set it up and had a good old chat. It's a bloody joy. You will have heard, again, in in last week's episode, when we recorded it, we were bigging up Jordan's Soho Theatre run. By the time it came out, Jordan's Soho Theatre run had sold out. (laughs) So we had to big up the London Palladium show on October 28th. But Lauren, you're going to hear loads about Lauren now, but she's got a Soho Theatre run of her own in December. So I recommend you swoop in on that immediately so this doesn't, you know, leave you hanging. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah, uh, as ever... We're brought to you by Speech Records.com. We've got loads of good merch over there. I did a, a social media post recently asking for um, lyric T-shirt requests. I want to do a, a limited run t- as we head into Christmas of, of lyric tees because I've never done lyric T-shirts and I've been asked about them all my all my career. So I thought I'd do a few, but I want it. I want to base them around distraction pieces. So find that post on my Instagram. And give me the lyrics that you would like to see, and we'll see what we could knock up. We're also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip, where you can support for like a dollar a month and be part of a nice, nice little community over there. Speaking of nice communities, head on over to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip, yo, where for free you can be part of a wonderful community where I'm there normally three times a week. I mean, this week I happen to be going away for a wedding so I'm not streaming as much but there's loads of stuff over there man and I save a lot of it on VOD so if you go to to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio there's a load of different kind of mini series which you can tune in and watch at your own leisure all for free so head over there and do all of that but most importantly nice one for tuning in this is another great comedian that's two comedians in a week and they're both a joy to talk to. So I hope you in- enjoy this. I honestly think Lauren is the absolute f- future. And we talk a bit in here about Lauren wanting to be in writer's rooms and wanting to do or be, in, b- be on more podcasts is one of the things. I know a, lo- a lot of my distraction pieces network lot tune in. I think Lauren would be amazing on Hardcore Listing, on S- S- Sex with Charlie and Nina, on any of the amazing podcasts on the network. So that's a big... I recommend any of you reach out. But if anyone tuning in is a has got a good little podcast, you'll hear this was one of the easiest conversations I've had, and that's what you want as a podcaster. You want it to be a breeze. You don't want it to be hard work. And also, again, if you see Lauren's award-nominated show, you'll know that this is a voice that would be a great benefit in writers rooms and tv shows all these things i want to see lauren on more tv shows to be quite honest i'm going to stop trying to force everyone to uh have lauren on their shows and i'll just let you listen to the time i forced lauren to be on my show this is episode 
477 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Lauren Patterson. There we go. Right. Oh, there we go. I'm here today with Lauren Patterson. How are you, mate? I'm very good, thank you. I'm I'm a bit stressed though. Like, have you tried to buy gig tickets in 2022? I have not. What have you been been trying to buy for? It's impossible. I was trying. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we tried to get tickets for Sam Fender at St yep. James's Park. We tried twice. And it was like the most stressful moment of my life because now obviously you've got just like all the robots buying tickets. Yeah. And I was like, you don't know the well, they're robots, they probably do, they're very smart. But um, then we try to get tickets for Andy C today yeah. at um, the O2. That was stressful. I was like, oh, it'll be easy. I nominate myself as leader to buy tickets. And now I feel like buying gig tickets is such an ordeal. <laughs> but I'm did old it. enough to, to to remember when I used to have to get the train into to London to go to the oh, which company was it? It wasn't a, a Ticketmaster. One of the ticket companies literally had a shop next to Oxford Street train station, oh, and you'd yeah. go there to buy your gig gig tickets for all of the all of the London venues. So. You know. I said that to my dad the other day. I was like, I miss when you could just go and queue. And I was like, God, I'm not even 30 and I'm already <laughs> longing for the old days. <laughs> I love it. Well, have you got both sets of tickets in the end? I need to make sure this has got a happy ending. We were unsuccessful for Sam Fender, but I've bought some on resale that Brilliant. weren't more expensive. So that's good. And we were Brilliant. successful for Andy C. I love We've it. We've got a good 2023 to look forward to now. It's all worked out in the end so far. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because I was talking to a mate about this earlier. Normally on the podcast, I do loads and loads of research and get really prepped. But I kind of like that I stumbled upon your Fringe show almost by chance. And that's kind of all I know of you. So I wanted to just kind of not do loads of research Amazing. and just jump on and find out in person. Lovely. And hear about uh, about your life and your career and everything else. As I said, I saw your Fringe show and honestly, it just blew me away. I, oh, thank I, you. I loved it so much. It was real. It was a real chance one. I had, a, I had a weird visit to the Fringe in that I was there for one evening, one daytime and one morning on, on oh, separate yeah. days. So, 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 so it was really <laughs> odd. I wasn't there for three days. I was there for... Like one whole day spread over th- three days. Yeah. And the last day I was going to see Rob Alton before I had to drive to Liverpool and he was on about half one. And I thought, shall I see if there's anyone else on that I want to catch beforehand? And the, the Fringe Awards had just been announced. And I thought, oh, oh I'll have a look they? and see if anyone has got a morning show. And you had a morning show. And I think I'm, I mentioned this to you. I was genuinely torn because the day before I'd found a really good bakery that had the most amazing cakes. I was like, right, have I ever got time to get cakes or catch a show? And I ended up <laughs> r- running to get cakes and running to start a show because I couldn't justify missing either for either, if you know what I mean. So I'm flattered. I, I ran into the show. chosen cake. <laughs> yeah, I ran in full of cake and sat at the back. And man, it just really hit me. Obviously, it's it's hilarious, but there was a lot that got me welling up and having tears in my eyes. And it felt like 
it wasn't necessarily the bits that the rest of the crowd were getting emotional over. And I think the reason for that was Edinburgh can be quite middle class and your story is a very working class story. And there were a few moments in it that just cut me to my core. And I'm kind of looking around and everyone's smiling and giggling. And I'm like, I was glad I had my mask on. I had my had my little COVID mask on. I was like, I'm glad oh, no yeah. one can tell how emotional I'm getting here. But uh, let's talk about y- your f- fringe in, in general, I guess. How was it this year? How was it as an experience? It was weird because, like, I kind of went in this year thinking this could be your last fringe. Like, it's becoming so expensive. I don't want to bill it yeah. as a, this is my final show. I was like, but... Like, deep down, I was like, this could be the last time I come up here with a show. I was like, so I need to make sure this show, if it is my last show, is a message, is what, you know, if if this is going to be the last thing I do, what do you want to go out on? And I was like, I want to go out with a bang. Like, I'm not holding anything back. Like, I'm not going to be worried about pissing off, like, the industry and the gatekeepers or, like, ruffling feathers. I was like, like you say, my story is a unashamedly working class story and I'm not diluting that for anybody absolutely not and I kind of went in with a bit of a I've got nothing to lose I was like I love like comedy but like the fringe is becoming so expensive I was like so kind of treat it as maybe it could be your last show and just enjoy it and just have fun with it so I wrote a show for me really like I wrote the show I want to like I wanted to write not that I've never done that before but I think sometimes I've held back on little bits I mean like oh I can't say this I can't say that I was like nope writing this show for me everything I've ever wanted to say about the last couple of years of my life really getting everything across and I just want to enjoy it and I, I was in the venue I wanted to be in I've always wanted to be in Monkey Barrel I got my time slot rolled over from 2020 and I was like your show's in the daytime so half past one you don't even have to think about the fringe anymore. Like, just don't think about it. And I was like, just yeah. enjoy this month. I wasn't selling out every day, none of that kind of stuff. I, I don't think I was particularly, like, buzzy show. You know, after the first week, people are like, oh, go see, like, this person, go see this person. Yeah. But none of that matters. Like, I think two years ago, three years ago, I would have been a bit like, oh, everyone else is selling out and I'm not. Everyone else has had an extra shows. And I was like, I'm genuinely having a nice time. Like, I'm enjoying the shows I'm doing. Don't get us wrong, like, they were busy, like... I was either selling out like on the day maybe on some of them or like selling out on because mine you could pay what you want and just walk up. So yeah. I had like nice busy rooms. It's not like I don't want it to sound like it was just me and a dog in the room. It's, or something. It's, but it's mad how if it's depending on where you are mentally, the fringe can be a mad one for like, yeah. I always say like any mates who are going up to the fringe as, as audience, I always say book some, some tickets in advance because it just exactly. helps the mental health of the person putting on show. I know that's it's easier thing. to wander about and go, oh, that's on, I'll well, catch that. This, but yeah. you know all of the artists are going to be getting their ticket sales through every day or whatever exactly. else. Exactly. It stresses you out, man, because it is oh, expensive definitely. and it is scary. And that's the thing. I was in a position where I had nice pre-sales, and let's say some of them sold out like on the day or some of them filled up with like pay what you want but on the whole I had really I think I sold about 70% of me tickets overall which is what I was aiming for which I think says a lot about me as a person because I think most comics would be like I want to sell out and I'm very much like "Mm, 70% and I'm fine like 70% is I'm doing my show at the uh, the stand in Newcastle in a couple of weeks and I tweeted last night I really wanted to sell 200 tickets and someone was like oh is that the capacity and I was like oh no it's 280 but I just want to (laughs) sell Yeah, I just I'd, want to sell 200. I'd like it to feel full. Exactly. <laughs> so I was in a really nice place. And let's say, I think when I did my first show, like in 2017, I think I was really bothered about, oh, it, it has to sell out every day. My name has to be on that board every day. If mm. I'm not, then I'm failing. But this year, I was like, the audiences are enjoying it. 
The feedback was amazing. I was getting lovely tweets and lovely Instagrams. I came away every day from the show feeling good. And I was like, this is all that matters. This is all that matters. And people were like, you must have expected to get nominated. This is how little I thought I was going to get nominated. My ticket sales took a nosedive in the last week, which I think was quite true across the board. Mm -hmm. So Monday, I think I was about half full. And I was like, I still can't complain. That's like 50 people. Tuesday was about the same. And I thought you know what, I'm going home this afternoon, I'm going home, my tickets for the weekend were on, I think Thursday was on 20, Friday was on 20, and Saturday was on 18, and I thought, it's probably going to be quite a quiet last week, but I've had a lovely three weeks, so on the Tuesday, I went home, and I took all of my clothes back to Newcastle, so I'd have less to carry back on the weekend, I came back up on the Wednesday, did my show, went to do a voiceover, um, for the bingo, because I do bingo voiceovers, exactly. and I had no signal in this booth, and then all of a sudden I got a patch of signal, and my phone was blowing up with people going, congrats, 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 and I was like, why is everyone congratulating us on doing Mecca Bingo? Like, I've done this for ages. <laughs> it's not really hard, I just talk, I'm good at that, and then suddenly the penny dropped, and all I could think was, oh my god, I'm going to have to do a photo shoot tomorrow, and I've took all my clothes home, like... <laughs> And I was like, for anyone who thinks for a second I expected to get nominated, yeah. I, would, I had to like assemble an outfit together from like the shreds of what I had left. I did not expect it. And like what you were saying about it being quite like a working class story, I didn't expect a show that was so unashamedly about being working class in a middle class industry to be recognised by the mm. industry. Like I knew yeah. the audiences would like it and the audiences were liking it, but I thought... This might upset the powers that be. And I don't think this is a show that'll get like five stars across the board. I don't think it's a show that'll get nominated, but that's fine because you, you write it for the audience. Like, that's yeah. what I always say. Whenever mates get upset about, with, like, say, like a two or a three star review, I'm like, but that guy didn't buy a ticket. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, that guy yeah, was yeah. never going to buy a ticket anyway. You need to focus on the people who are buying tickets and make sure you're doing the best for them, sort of thing. So I was very very surprised I thought I was having a heart attack at one point right <laughs> like genuinely I thought this doesn't happen I'm 28 I've been doing comedy since I was 18 working class I went back to work in the pandemic I was working in Morrison's like I was watching all my friends like either not have to go back to work which I talk about in the show and I'm like that's fine like some people didn't need to but then stuff started coming back and I watched all my friends getting telly and there's me still like stacking shelves and serving pizzas I was working in a restaurant as well and I was like I like I think this dream might be over for me. So then to get the nomination, genuinely yeah. thought I was having a heart attack. Didn't have anyone to talk to. So I went to the cinema to say nope, just to sit in a dark room for two hours to try. Because I had this like pain in my chest. And I rang my boyfriend and he was like, that's pure adrenaline in your chest. And I was like, yeah. I don't like it. I think I'm dying. And I just had to go and sit in the cinema in a dark room. Because I just thought this doesn't happen to people like me. Like yeah. I left my day job in April. I was still working in a little theatre near me, like checking tickets, writing me yeah. show on my laptop while people were coming in. <laughs> Amazing. And I love that, that kind of, that striving as most people do in life to feel good. And then you're like, I don't want to feel this good. This feels, this feels bad. This feels exactly. painfully good. This is, I can't handle this much good. That's, that's someone who's like quite an anxious person to feel that level of just pure, I guess it was just pure joy. I was like, is this how people feel all the time? Like, is this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it, but it was really, 
surreal, really surreal. I remember going out for a few drinks. I hadn't really drank all festival. And I rang my fella and I was crying down the phone. And he starts crying back. And I was like, why are you crying? He was like, why are you crying? I was like, I think we're crying <laughs> over the same thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. You've, you, you've touched a couple of times on it being unashamedly working class. But one of the things I liked about that, because again, I've seen a lot of unashamedly working class things and it's all yeah. like, fuck the Tories, fuck the... But I think the bit that got me as as unashamedly was the openness to, like, a simple thing, you, like you've mentioned, your boyfriend, you love a posh boy. That's a hard thing I to admit know. as a working-class person. Oh, my God. And that's kind of key at different points in your story. And it's like... Absolutely. That was what was good. It's not just, uh, f- fuck the middle class, all this. It's saying, look, here's the problems yeah. with it. Here's what I fucking adore about it. Here's Absolutely. what I'm into. And I'm glad that's came across because that was my biggest worry when I was writing it. I was like, I don't want it to come across. And I think I even say it in the show, like, oh, I don't want you to think this accent's got a chip on our shoulder. I'm kind of having a go at certain aspects of, like, you know, privilege and Mm -hmm. how all the difficulties that come with not having privilege. But I didn't want it to sound, especially at a festival like Edinburgh, I was like, God, I don't want it to sound like I'm just slagging off people with privilege. So I tried to make a real point of saying, I don't mind if you are privileged, just bloody accept it and own it and embrace it and that whole kind of of show exactly that whole show was sort of about embracing your background be that you know you've come from nothing or you've come from everything like I just like honesty and transparency and I was like oh I just hope it doesn't sound like I'm having a go especially I wanted to point at my boyfriend and be like he's dead posh like. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And and that's exactly it. I think you've really nailed the really important through line of your show there is that ex- acceptance of these things. Like, I took ages to accept white privilege. Yeah. And again, it's one of the most... Uh, it's it's maybe a poor name because I come from a working class area and there's a lot of people around yeah. there who will be the, oh, I've had it easier, have I? It's like, no, 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 no one's saying that, mate. But exactly. you have to accept that there's certain boundaries you haven't had to overcome because of the colour of your skin and that's all it's saying and equally the other way around like there's certain I've brought posh mates into pubs around here and they've had a fucking nightmare of a night because everyone's first reaction is oh hello who's this fucking hell all right it's like right well well, there's there's it's all these things can be accepted and and dissected as such and I think you do a really good job in doing that in a really non-judgmental and the key part F- funny way in your show oh, it works thank you works and even little things like I tried to make sure I was calling out myself as well so there was a very I've got one political sort of bit in there but I made a point of prefacing that bit by saying like I used to be really ignorant about politics mm. like sort of when the bit in time that that bit was about was about meeting my ex-boyfriend that was like sort of around the time of the Brexit vote and I made a point of prefacing it with that and being like I was really ignorant about politics and I'll hold my hand up and admit, but I don't want to be ignorant and I don't want to be stupid and that's yeah. why I learned. And then I felt like that gave me the validity to then do a political bit because I was like, I'm telling you I don't know everything, but I'm also telling you I'm someone who hasn't come from a upbringing where politics are discussed constantly, but I've learned and I've tried to grow my brain and I've formed opinions. And I think that's really important as well to kind of be honest and be like, okay, I was a bit ignorant about that and yeah I think you're completely right and I'm always or at points I think one of the most impressive things is people not necessarily oh the most woke person in the world but someone who's even mildly woke and I don't see woke as a negative term I should preface with that (laughs) someone who's even mildly woke when they've come from 
a background that isn't that way at all. I always remember, I've, I've mentioned this a lot, but I used to work with a security guard when I worked in HMV. My manager at the time said, don't j- j- judge him too quickly because he was a big bloke, shaven head, had like a bulldog in a union jack t- tattooed mm-hmm. on his arm and all this. And he came up to me on one shift and was like saying, so uh, I was reading some poetry last night and I found the uh, Scroobius Pip. Is that where you got your name from? And all this kind of thing. And, he's, and ah. I'm like, oh, shit. And then it turned out he'd been brought up as a card-carrying member of the BNP. His dad, his brothers, his uncles were all full racist. That's how he'd been brought up. Yeah. And at some point he had seen through that and educated himself and like he was saving up to get his bulldog tattoo removed because it was a kind of a bmp tattoo and all this kind of thing and that impressed me far more someone who like i'm lucky i was born to parents who are very liberal and open and friendly so it's easy for me to not be a racist prick or a homophobic (laughs) prick or whatever else but for people who've been born brought up to be that oh man it it blows my mind to be able to push through that and go no i'm gonna I'm going to go outside of that and educate myself in ways exactly, that, that, yeah. that aren't, aren't necessarily handed to me. So uh, can we talk a little bit about your where you grew up, what yeah. what your your youth was like, what your route into politics was? Wh- where are you from originally? So I'm from Newcastle, proper, yep. proper Newcastle. I'm not one of these who's like, I'm from Newcastle. And I'm like, you're from South Shields. You're from the beach. It doesn't count. Yeah. I did the Great North Run two weeks ago where you run to South Shields, yeah. never again. Well, I say that. I will do it again because I like raising <laughs> money for charity. But you run from Newcastle to South Shields. And I'm not saying I was quite stressed, but I got about my late and I was like, there's a perfectly good bus. Why am I doing this? But <laughs> two and a half grand for calm. That's why we did it. But I um, it. And, I, and then my boyfriend wouldn't um, watch his pop my blister, which I was really upset about because I love all stuff Support. like that. Come on. Exactly. I was like, I'm a athlete you need to watch this but um yeah I grew up in (laughs) Newcastle my parents still live in the house that I like grew up in like we've never lived anywhere else um very like for a comedian I think I've got a very chill childhood I was very quiet kids really really like like kind of what I talk about in the show about it's it's now obvious, I think, that I was always going to be anxious or was always mm. anxious, very shy, like to have my head in a book, all this kind of stuff, did not like to be the centre of attention, wouldn't talk. When like people from sort of primary school kind of time find out I do stand-up, they're like, little shy Lauren, like, no way. Yeah. I think that's one of the interesting things that you touch upon in the show and another thing I related to, because I'm not Mr... Like, when I'm out and about, I don't particularly want attention, I don't want to control yeah. the room or anything like that but i think the beauty of stand up or the kind any kind of performance is it's attention when you're in control Absolutely. it's you going i have prepared to have attention for an hour now i'm going to be okay here's yeah. here's what i want that attention for rather than just look at me for no reason. So that was, again, an interesting thing that I thought isn't talked about much, how not every performer is a... Extrovert, Look at me, let's go kind of thing. Because I think as well, especially as a kid, I was always the quiet kid, so I struggled to be heard. And I think even still, maybe not necessarily now, but sort of a few years ago, like when I was still in my 20s and stuff, you know, if I was out in a group, I'd probably be the one who'd be like, oh, I'll just sit and wait until my turn like I would always be yeah. spoken over and stuff I suppose that is sort of still true technically I, I never like to fight to make my voice heard and I think as a result that's why I like stand up because I've earned the right to be heard 
people want to listen to us and I've sort of very much created this environment where I can't as someone who's quite often not listened to I sort of created this little gap where I could be heard where people kind yeah. of had to li- well not even yeah. had to listen to us but wanted to listen to us yeah. Yeah. and I found that really like empowering but then like people sort of come up to us off stage and they're like oh shit you are very anxious because I'm just like huddled in the corner like thank you for coming nice yeah. to meet you but I got into drama I've always liked drama I was Mary in the, the nativity which I think Amazing. um put me on the path to to greatness I wasn't meant to be Mary. I think I was meant to be like villager number seven or something. (laughs) And I was quite upset at home that I hadn't got Mary. Because I was blonde and everything. I was perfect Mary. And then Mary conveniently got sick on the day of the nativity. And I got Mary. And I distinctly remember my mum going, have you done something to her? And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't poisoned her. It was nothing to do with me, I promise. Exactly. But um, I remember in my primary school in year six, the Levers would do like um, a pantomime. And I grew up watching that and being like, I can't wait till I get to do the pantomime. And I think that sort of gave us this sort of like a bug for performing. Yeah. And I went into secondary school and I started to pursue it then. Like I joined a drama club and a drama group. And it was like finding my little safe space as a kid yep. who was so shy and the rest of her. Like, I think that's what I liked about it. I could be someone else. Like... Yeah. I was this shy kid. I wasn't very popular. I was quite like smart and nerdy. So, you know, it was never cool to be smart and nerdy. I wasn't in with the cool group. I had my friends, but, you know, I wasn't popular. And I just felt like whenever I sort of did any kind of drama, I got to be someone else. And then the older I got, got to about 15. And I discovered I was really good at making people laugh. Like people would laugh and I, that's like a drug. Like, yeah. oh my God, the first time I sort of made someone laugh and I was like, this is nice, can we do this again? And then my drama group started a, a workshop for stand-up for, like, the kids, and you could give stand-up a go. So me and my friends signed up for it, and I loved it. Like, I absolutely loved it, because I also liked writing, and it was, like, all these loves coming together. I liked writing, I liked performing, and I liked making people laugh. And even at 15, I was like, this is what I want to do. And that's kind of how I, like, fell into it. Um, I love it. I love yeah. the kind of... I think there's really something in those early years of being talked over, of not getting a chance to speak, that builds an economy of words for a a, a person that you know that when I'm going to speak, it's going to be really funny or it's going to be something really good. I'm not just speaking constantly. I know that I'm going to make the most of that moment. And yeah, yeah, I think that that, that's good for building comedians or whatever. Oh, definitely. And because I really like sort of reading and I'd always have my head in a book, I think once I started performing, I realised like I could... These worlds I really liked getting lost in. I was like, well, I can make my own worlds. Like, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's what I've always tried to do with my stand up and how I would discuss, cause you've seen us now. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like joke, joke, joke. I like to tell a story. Yeah. Um, and I, I very much, I want people to come and see me, especially for an hour. And at the end, really feel like they've spent an hour in my world. I want them to mm. know me. I want them to know me friends, me family. I want them to just feel like they've been like swept up in something for an hour that's like totally removed from you know their life or their outside world and that just for an hour we can sit in a room together be part of my world and then off you go again (laughs) yeah I I love it so so where did you start gigging then because again the tough thing of starting out in comedy is you don't get people for an hour yeah. You get people for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, for five Absolutely. minutes or whatever else. So so, so where was kind of your starting point and how did you find that? Was that the right 
pacing or did you always feel I need to get to the point where I can have a load of time with them to, yeah. to really get myself across? See, weirdly, the whole thinking about writing an hour never really came to me in the first right. few years. I was like, God, an hour feels ages away. And I think it's because <laughs> I was cutting my teeth on the circuit where, like you say, you don't get any more than 20, 25 minutes, really. Yeah. So I would say for the first four years of my career, all I was thinking about was, oh, I'd love to be good enough to do 20 minutes. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. And I started, well, technically I started, after I did this, like, uh, workshop at the at my little drama group, I thought, how do I get into stand-up? Because I was 18 as well. But when I started yeah. looking, I was 17. I thought, I- I'm not even old enough to go in a pub. And that's where half <laughs> the gigs are. And I found this competition, So You Think You're Funny. You had to have been gigging for less than a year. And I was like, I've technically never gigged. This is amazing. This um, is so this is why I rate starting stand-up at 18. Because I don't want to say I was thick, because I'm not. I'm a smart girl. But I was clueless. So I oh. didn't have any of the fear like say if I was starting stand up now at 28 I'd be like oh well I can't do this yet because I'm not ready for that but I didn't know the rules no one had told us like so I signed up for this competition so you think you're funny and the heat was at a pub called the Chilling the Moms in Heaton which I ended up living by when I was at uni for a few years and I went and I did not thinking I want to get through the competition I thought I want stage time here is a gig I couldn't drive so I was like it's it's near where I live and I went and I did this gig I thought nothing of it I think I did a couple others like around Newcastle like again thinking nothing much of it I was just like this is something I want to do then I was at tea in the park rest in peace tea in the park in a field and my phone rang and it was the organizer of the competition she was like oh you're through to the semi-finals and I was like oh it's okay I don't want to and she was like no, but you're through to the semi-finals. I went, no, I just did it for a bit stage time. And she was like, I don't think you're in, you are through to the next stage of the competition. This is a huge competition. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm, so technically my first proper gig was the heat of that competition. I'd never wow. gigged before. And I remember That's sitting amazing. there being like, oh God, actually, I don't think I'd done any other gigs apart from that. Because I remember after that, I came back from this music festival and I was like, I need to find some gigs and I remember I did one at a pub in town like a bar and I did a red row at the stand in Newcastle I think I emailed them and because I had this like sort of not power but I had a bit pushed behind us now and I said oh you know I'm through with the semi-finals of this please could I have some stage time so I think they bumped yeah. us up a bit so I did these couple of gigs I went and did like the competition in Edinburgh didn't get any further than that but I wasn't bothered I'd just done it for stage time and I remember coming back starting uni in that September that was the September I started uni and I just thought this is what I want to do and my first year of uni I sort of would I gigged in Newcastle mainly but every now and then I would get on a I would sit on like Facebook and troll the like forums to try and find gigs and I would sit like spend my student loan on like a mega bus to go to like Derby or wherever and do a gig but I didn't really do too much that first year and then sort of what I call like my second year of stand-up is when I really started to push for it. I spent most of my student loan on megabuses to get gigs. Like, yeah. Yeah. I could have yeah. had such a fun time. <laughs> what were you doing at uni? Or what were you meant to be doing at uni? So, surprise, surprise, I was doing drama. Always knew I wanted to perform, but I guess maybe didn't know I wanted to be a... I don't think I even knew stand-up could be a career mm. until I remember I got offered to usually the progression at the Stan Comedy Club is you do like some some five minutes on red roll and then they invite you back for 10 minutes and then eventually you get a 10 minute spot on their weekend. 
I got offered, and I don't know if anyone else has been offered this, I'd be really curious to know, I got offered a five-minute spot on the weekend lineup because they knew I had potential, but they also knew I was an actual fetus. <laughs> like, yeah, I was so yeah. young. I was yeah. 18, and they gave me a five-minute spot on the weekend. And I remember being buzzing because I got paid. I probably got, like, about a tenner or something. I didn't get much money, but I didn't care. And I got free chips. I was more excited about that. I remember Amazing. there's a picture on Facebook of me somewhere looking thrilled with this, like, bowl of chips. And I was like, you can just tell I was so young when I started stand-up that... The prospect of free chips excited. It would still excite us now, to be honest. And uh, they gave me a five-minute spot. <laughs> and then I remember a few weeks later being on, say, like a red roll there or something, like the new acne. Someone came up to us and was like, are you that 18-year-old who's already getting paid work? And I was like, possibly. <laughs> like, sounds like it. That sounds like it could be me. But like, I, I didn't know it wasn't normal to start stand-up that young. And, and I, like, like, I didn't know the rules. And I remember another act in Newcastle saying to us, you know this could be more than a hobby for you. And I was like, could it? And they were like, you, you can get paid to do this. And I, like, I didn't know. I didn't know you got paid to do the clubs. And I didn't yeah. know about it. And once I started to learn about this going into like my second year, I was like, absolutely, this is what I want to do. Definitely. I love it. I love it. So so one of the things that people kind of learn quite quickly in comedy is about how big the fringe can be. It, yeah. it can be a huge thing for acts. It's a huge undertaking. But, you know, I speak to a lot of people who have had hellish years up there. But, I mean, yeah. I've only performed it once. So I mainly get to go as just a fan. Yeah. And it's a joy as a fan. It's, oh, absolutely. It's, all the stress is gone. It's just there's so much there. But you had a really good year there. Uh, uh, was it in 2019? Uh, 17, yeah. 2017. 17, yeah. So that was my debut, Yeah. And that was your debut year. Yeah, and, yeah, my little baby debut. And it went down well. And then, you know, leading along, again, as you talk about in the show, you were gearing up for a big year in 2020 yeah. when the pandemic hit. Exactly. And everything changed. So at this point, you'd kind of gone to, as you said, you were at 18, the comedian that's getting paid gigs at, at the yeah. stand. So. It was a tough one. And again, I don't want to kind of just go through your whole set because that, <laughs> people should go and see the show. It's amazing. Um, but I think it's a key part is that the realisticness of for working class people, when that pandemic hit, the arts were ignored for a large oh, part yeah. of that. And that was real impact. It wasn't necessarily a kind of, oh, this is annoying. I can't gig. It's This is annoying. Yeah. I need to go and get a real job. And the bit that really hit home for me and we'll talk about all of it is that you had to move for numerous other reasons as well that there was a, a a cacophony of of events but you found yourself living in your childhood bedroom and working in in Morrison's as you said and I yeah. this is going to sound like a really weird connection but I think it was about 2018 I got burgled and that night I still live like five minutes up the road from my mum and my childhood home and because there was smashed windows and stuff, I couldn't really mm-hmm. sleep here. And I remember sleeping in my childhood b- bedroom that night, and it felt so demasculating. It felt infantilizing, if that's a word, whatever the words are. Yeah. It felt horrible. And I just fucking cried a lot. As like a 36 or 37 year old man, I exactly. laid there thinking, fuck, this is. And again, I love my childhood home. I love yeah. my parents. I love everything about it. But it was such a weird thing. And that was only for one night, really, or two nights I might yeah. have had there. 
So it really, as soon as you started talking about that, it felt like a lot of the room were like, okay, that sounds interesting. Where's this going? And I was fucking heartbroken for you, particularly in the arts as well, because the arts is always an area where you think, I'm this far away from going back to retail. As I've touched upon, I worked in retail a lot, so I've always felt that. And you found yourself in that position as as the person who's made it out of of where you're from, the one who's had the success and and gone off to London and all this. You found yourself back. So talk to me about that a little bit. An emotional one, right? Well, I've always said, so I sort of talk about it in the show as well, where I was like, all I've ever wanted, you know, like 18 when you start your adult life, I was like, I want to be independent. I want to like have my own place or be living with friends, just just not living at home. I want a career that I love. I want a job that makes us happy. And I want a really nice relationship, like a happy relationship. Those those were the three things I was sort of, you know, that I sort of put on a pedestal at 18. That's like, that's what I want to achieve from my adult life. I moved out at 18. So I went in halls of residence for my first year of uni and then lived with friends for the next three years. Then I moved to London, did flat chairs for like the first year, two years, then moved in with um, my boyfriend at the time for two years. We lived together. So I'd not lived at home from 18. And this is the one bit in the show, and I'm glad you said this, that I was worried people wouldn't quite get why I was upset over it. Because I know to Mm. some people like, oh, you move, move home, big deal. But I think especially when... I do think, especially as a working class like person, when you've really aspired to stand on your own two feet and be independent and make a life for yourself, there was yeah. something about at 26 going back home with what felt like nothing to show. Mm. I was, well, you know, I had stuff despite to show for all it. Despite all you had done. Exactly. Despite everything, everything you'd got to, it's all suddenly you forget that instantly. It's all I, erased. I had a lot of like lovely memories and anecdotes, but I thought, well, this now means nothing going forward. And I think what, upset me the most as well wasn't just that I had to go home but because I'd lost my career I was like so how do I move on from here how do I get that independence back and a few people were a bit snidey about me going back to work and I was like 90% of the reason I went back to work was so I'd be in a position to get my independence back and move out like yeah yeah, I wanted my career back more than anything but I also didn't know how long that pandemic was going to go on for didn't think it was fair for us to be back at my parents either I'm sure they didn't want some huffy little 26 year old eating all the chocolate fingers from the cupboards yeah. and like watching the telly late at night and stuff like, even I'm little, an artist even little things like that there wasn't a telly because my bedroom has now become my niece's bedroom so there was no telly in there or anything so it really felt yeah. like being a kid I was like I can't even go to my room and watch telly because I don't have a telly yeah. and I felt I felt not just like I'd lost my independence, but also like I'd become a child again because I was like, yeah. I've got no way of getting out of here. And all I could think was, yeah, I don't want to be a burden. I don't, I've worked so hard to have that independence. And for me, it was a very logical step to go, okay, well, if I want to move out, how did I move out in the first place? I worked, I worked and I was like, fuck it, I'll go back to work. Like 100%. And I've seen far too many people and I don't want to say it's arrogance, but I've been far, seen far too many people, even in the pandemic, who felt they were above certain kinds of jobs. And yes. I don't mean that I'm not slagging anyone off here, but I, I understand it as well. You kind of, you've worked really hard to feel, yeah. I'm not in retail anymore, I'm not in this anymore. But at the end of the day, if you're going hungry, if people are going, if friends, if whatever else, then you've got to yeah. do what you've got to do. Oh, and absolutely. the thing that hit me when talking to numerous and it's a really hard thing to to, to to bring up to mates was I was saying 
I'm getting flyers all the time for Domino's d- delivery drivers because because yeah. takeaways have gone th- through the roof. I'm like, I know it's shit, but you do that and you'll be you'll be bringing some money in. You're Absolutely. in your own car, just listening to podcasts or whatever. It's not like, do you know what I mean? It, it felt like. There was numerous people I wanted to reach out and go, look, I know it's fucking rough, but you can kind of do it as a secret as well. Exactly. You don't have to shout about it, but you need earning money's earning money at the end of the day. That's the thing. And, oh, I'd forgotten about, because I've worked, obviously, day jobs before, but I've never worked a day job where I had, like, a staff canteen, and I'd forgot mm. how fucking brilliant a staff... Yeah. I was getting, like, a fry-up four times a week for about 80 pence, and I was like, this is incredible <laughs> yeah absolute madness so, so you found yourself there and you remain positive but you're going to have moments right you're going to have moments yeah. where you bump into because the arts is a weird one for working class people anyway yeah. because it does always feel like a little bit like bullshit like there's there's n- n- no one I'll talk to about the small successes I have more the mates from way back because I'll feel I have to just no it is going well no honestly I did this and it's exactly. not it's not a boastful thing it's not anything it's more to go I'm not a prick honestly I'm, I'm, I'm it's going all right I, it's a yeah. proper job I'm not just a chancer well that's what know? got me so I after I had that really good debut yeah I got a lot of, like travel opportunities I'd never been further than Spain so I would have been what 23 at this point 23 turning 24 I came back from that fringe in 2017. I went to India for two weeks. Um, And then I came back and I went to Istanbul. And then I went to Oslo. I think I I I went to Oslo that year. And then in the new year, I went to Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, New Zealand, and Montreal. Incredible. But I got all those opportunities, obviously, through comedy. And I remember somebody saying to me, not long after I come back from Australia, oh, did you have a nice holiday? And I really didn't react. I wasn't nasty, but very quickly I went, it wasn't a holiday oh, but, but, you know, you went on holiday. And I was like, I was there to work. And, like, don't get us wrong. Of course, it wasn't the same work as when I used to work in a restaurant or when I used to work in a shop. But I wasn't brought out there for a holiday. I was brought out there for my career. It's weird, those those little triggers and nuances, isn't it? Exactly. I get really... I still I try not to, but since I moved into acting, if anyone ever refers to any roles I've got, no matter how small as a cameo, I always yeah. feel like, what? no, no, it's a... Because, again, I've not got anything that I've just been, oh, I have this. I've auditioned for everything and I've worked really hard for everything. Even if it is a tiny role, it means the fucking well to me. Oh, definitely. And although Cameo isn't an insult at all, it always rings to me as someone's gone, oh, Pip, fancy popping in for a day on this. It's like, yeah, that's that's never happened to me. I've not done it. If I do a Cameo, I'll be fine with it. But, yeah, I've had some tiny roles that are a cameo i'm sure in reality it's a cameo but yeah i've always felt i auditioned twice for that and i figured the character out and i put in all my time i did my work even though i'm only on screen for a minute but it's weird the things that trigger you i said it's not bad it's a holiday a holiday would be be lovely i'm sure you had some nice time out there as well because that's part of the thing but it's that slight trigger of no 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 Exactly, because to me it sort of like trivialises my whole career. I've worked hard for this. Exactly, like, oh, well, she's just just off in Australia having a really nice time. And I was like, yeah, but I've worked so hard to be able to have this really nice time. Like, oh, it got me very stressed, very stressed. So how was it to start working on a new Fringe show? Because there's so much uncertainty all the while through the pandemic, particularly with comedy, with anything audience-based, 
what are you coming back to? Is there anything to come back to? Is there going to be a fringe? What will that look like? All these kind of things. But again, you've spoken about working on this show that ended up nominated, um, working on it on the Tilly Morrison's, um, on the the, the counter at the the theatre, all these different things. So how was that? Was that important to your mindset in working there to... We've talked about kind of convincing other people that you're working hard, but to convince yourself in a way that you're still this good comedian. You're oh, not definitely. just the kids who you feel like you are now. You're still, you're, yeah, you're still yeah. Lauren. So like 2021, um, there was like a weird little like mini fringe, but sort of yeah. all the way through my time working at Morrison's, like if there was ever a lull on the tills or whatever, um, I would print off a bit of till receipt and because often I was doing like Zoom gigs in the evening or, yeah. you know, little online gigs. And I would think, well, I don't just want to do like the same old stuff. Like this is a good time to try out new ideas because if nobody laughs, I can just close the laptop and <laughs> go mm-hmm. in another room and pretend it didn't happen. And so I would yeah. jot down little ideas on the back of a till receipt. And then I started working in a restaurant summer 2021 and two weeks before obviously this was still oh we don't know if it's going to be a fringe two weeks before it was due to start or was potentially due to start they said yep we're gonna have this little mini fringe I got an offer off the monkey barrel to come and do like two nights there and I just said yes I was like fuck it let's just say yes and then I was like ah now I've got to ask for time off work on a weekend (laughs) like I'd forgotten how difficult this is to manage so luckily I managed to wangle the time off and I remember thinking I've got two weeks to put this show together so I thought about all the Zoom gigs I'd been doing and jotted down like any of the new ideas I'd had, the stuff about like working in the supermarket, the stuff about the breakup and moving back home. I just jotted everything down and then I listened back to me 2020 show that I'd started and I thought, is there anything I can salvage from there? Any routines that aren't too specific? So I jotted down a couple of bits. I literally just had a page full of notes and I thought, well, that's the benefit of it. But it was advertised as a work in progress as well. I was like, this is just going to be an hour of let's throw shit at the wall and see mm. what sticks. So I did that for two nights. Very different show to what it would become now, but like definitely the, the sort of seed of it was there. Now I look back. How were the crowds on, on, oh on those God. nights? Because it's a weird one because yeah. I think both sides were hungry for something, yeah. but not sure what that something was going to be, if you know what I mean, with socially distanced and whatever else. Yeah, so I did about. two nights. I think I did either a Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. Both incredible, both sold out relatively quickly because I think it was like obviously capacity as well. So mm. even though it was a 150-seater room, they were capping it at, say, like 80. And I remember doing this show on like the first night, full room, my bloody dog was there barking away and I had like chills, like genuine chills because I hadn't done an hour in, well, since I'd started previewing the last show and I thought, God, the last time I did an hour of a material, my life was completely different. I was living in London with a boy who I thought I had a future with and like this show was about trying to make a future with him essentially. And Oh yeah, I mean the... the it was the 2020 or the original planned 2020 show that was essentially meant to be about how yeah. great things are going, right? It's, it was about like sort of how I'd accepted I was probably going to stay in London forever because that's where my partner was and I loved yeah. him and how do I like try and be a bit less lonely and fit into London? And then I was like, mm, a show about loneliness and isolation in 2021 is not what people want to hear. And suddenly yeah. a year on, I'm doing stuff, jokes that had been about him being my partner and now about him being my ex. And I was like, God, life has changed like a lot. But they were laughing and laughing and like every laugh I felt like you know when you get like a power up on a video game 
I felt like, because I do think, I, I tried my best to keep up appearances and look like I was smashing it, but obviously, well, not look like I was smashing it, but look like I was doing fine. But underneath, of course, like, I was a bit like, I'm never going to do comedy again. Like, I don't, mm. I don't feel like me without comedy because I've spent my whole adult life doing comedy. And every laugh I got, I could feel like the old Lauren coming back. I could feel yeah. myself, like, almost growing and glowing on stage. And it got to the end, and I've got a joke in this year's show about obviously not wanting to cry in Edinburgh shows anymore, because I did that in 2017. But I was so emotional at the end, and I was like, I just can't thank you enough for coming. I was like, I've been working, like, back in day jobs for the last year. I'm still in a day job. I didn't think anyone cared about what I had to say anymore. I was like, yeah. I've got a room full of people. Not only have you turned up, but you're laughing. And I was like, this just makes me feel... Like, there is a space for me in comedy. The audience definitely want me. The audience want my voice. I just need to get the industry to listen. That's what I need to do next, because you're listening, and you like yeah. it, and you know I'm good. I was like, I, I just know that there is a space for me. I've just got to fight that bit harder for it. And I came back from that Edinburgh, and I was like, I'm going to put everything into I had fire, like actual fire in my belly. I was like, I'm going to put everything into this show, everything I want to put into it, everything I want to say, everything I have felt for these last two years is going into this show. And I'm so proud of it. So proud. <laughs> I love it. And it comes across. And I love the kind of the beauty of work evolving and the curse of the artist that shit times tend to bring really good material kind yeah. of thing and and again it, it just hearing you in your show talk about what the original show was and then what it became and the jokes kind of some of the jokes from that original show kind of making it in but with a twist yeah um i had a song in my music days called stunner and it was a chorus i originally wrote when I was in a happy relationship and it wasn't quite working and the chorus was simply the world don't revolve around you but it should I ain't saying you're perfect but you're really really good I ain't saying I love you but I probably could and it didn't it just didn't feel right yeah. and by the time that album was being written I was out of that relationship and I just added the word have yeah. after could and it just m m made it all come together and it was one of them where I'm like Man, that was so simple. I'm not I'm not meant to write about good times. I'm exactly. meant to write about all the dark and horrible times. That's, that's where the, the real art comes together for, 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 for me. And that's that's the beauty of it, I guess. Yeah. And I felt weirdly lucky as well when I did sit and think, right, what can I write? So the reason I called it, it is what it is. This is going to sound so basic. I genuinely got told about it two weeks before. So this is July. And I was quite deep into Love Island at the time. And I was Brilliant. feeling quite like quite sassy and confident because I'd embodied the spirit of all the Love Island girls and I was like I just it. call it it is what it is it is what it is and I thought I'll think of a better title and then I realized as I started to write the show I was like this is the perfect title because it, yeah. essentially the show is about it is what it is and you just do what you can and you do your best and I felt weirdly yeah. lucky I don't know if lucky is the right word but I will admit I felt jealous quite a lot during the pandemic I was, of course I was jealous of people who didn't have to go back to work I'll admit mm. it and like People are like, are you just jealous because you've had to go back to work? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. yeah like, and I don't think that's a bad, would I rather be at home with like a loving partner, like making TikToks in the garden or being mm. paid £8.90 an hour to scan through shopping and being shouted at by customers? I was like, of course, I'd rather not be here, but it is yeah, what it is. And I have standard. to be here and I'm here. And when I started writing the show, I was like, well, hang on. So much has happened to me in the last two years. I was like, I've moved back to Newcastle. I've gone back to work. I've gone back to day jobs. I've had a breakup. Uh, I've also had like a new relationship start. And I realized I had so much to talk about. And I kind of felt 
in a bit more of a lucky position compared to maybe some other comics. And this isn't me slagging them off, but I thought, well, if you didn't go back to work, you've probably just spent a lot of the last year, two years in your house, homeschooling your kids or whatever, going on your legal one walk of the day. And I was like, that's not necessarily fun to write about because a lot of people or a lot of comics are also going to have had those experiences and you don't want a hundred comics all writing material about, oh, remember when we made banana bread? Because it just becomes boring. And I thought, I'm in such a lucky position. I mean, I didn't feel lucky at the time when my life collapsed around us, but I thought stuff has actually happened to us and... Yeah, it was shit to go through, but I've got something to write about and I've come out of it the other side a million times better. <laughs> it's, it's what's so impressive about the show. As I said, similarly as we were saying at the start, how it is about class, but it's not kind of preachy or or yeah. or, or moany, I think, or, or whatever, as you put it in the show. But equally, it's a show about the pandemic, which again, on paper, I'd probably have gone... Nah, man, I don't need to hear a yeah. show about the pandemic, but it's not that either. So I think everything exactly. about it is it's it's talking about things that you might think. Oh, I've heard so many working class comedians yeah. banging on about class. It's like yeah, but it's but not like this. And similarly, heard so many comedians banging on about the pandemic. And as you say, their banana bread and yeah. the hilarious thing that happened on their walk every day. But it's not that either. So I yeah, I think I really tried to get that across on the show by being like. Technically, it's about the pandemic because it is about the last two years of my life. So, of course, the last two years of my life is as a result of the pandemic. But it's also not a show about the pandemic. Yeah. And I remember I, re- I, I didn't read any of my reviews this year. In fact, I read one. But there was one that had like a comment section and I was morbidly curious. Uh, my rule is never to read the comment section. I haven't for years. But on this particular occasion, I was very curious. And someone had written... Well, is it possible to find a comic who didn't talk about the pandemic? And I thought, well, I mean, I talked about my life and I didn't actually really, and I thought, this is why you should never judge a show just on a review or something. So I don't know what that review said. Maybe it did make out like I banged on about the pandemic. But I yeah. thought, don't be put off just because someone kind of loosely says they talk about the pandemic. What I mean is I spoke about the last two years and, of course, what happened to us was as right. a result. If I'd just come out and started talking about going to work at Morrison's, everyone would have been like, why did you go work at Morrison's? <laughs> like, yeah. I had to and go mate, it, because I lost my it's job. The thing, it's the thing that, that pisses me off the most is people forget that everyone behind any of these things is a human. Yeah. And it's impossible to find a conversation exactly. <laughs> in that period that doesn't at least reference oh, definitely. the pan- p- pandemic. I've moaned about it before, but every recently I've had a few people complaining about how... Most times I have an actor on, I end up mentioning I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm like, honestly, it's not a hustling thing. It's just if you were at a barbecue, like when I was working in HMV, if I was at a barbecue and I was talking to someone for an hour and they also worked at an HMV, exactly. it would come up. I'd oh, bring definitely. it up. I wouldn't just keep quiet on it and then yeah. walk away going, they never knew that I also work in HV. That <laughs> shit comes up because we're normal humans Absolutely. having normal conversations. And the pandemic's a prime example of that as... As tough as it is, if you're doing a show that's a new show from yeah, your previous show that exactly. was just before the pandemic, that's going to be what you've experienced, right? It's it's logic. Definitely. For me, the pandemic was very much a jumping off point. I was like, these things happened because of the pandemic, and now we're going to 
yeah. we're going to follow that through. Like it was almost like yeah. that was like a jumping off point, but it just made us laugh. Did, did anyone at this fringe not talk about the pandemic? And I was like, it's almost like we talk about our lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start to wrap things up, but before I do this, two things I want to talk about. And one, I want to kind of find out, you've spoken about the immediate reaction to getting nominated and all these kind of things. How's it been in general? Because I think it's so tough with, again, in these industries, there's so many things that you're striving for. Yeah. And the reality is often very different from the dream. Often you won't get nominated and instantly get five sitcom offers, a world tour and all these other things. It's the stuff that's in your head because you imagine the example I always give is before it went a bit weird years ago, I went on on the Joe Rogan podcast and I was such a fan of it. I was like, this is, I'm going to go on there and the world will be different. Yeah. And I woke up the next morning and the world wasn't different in <laughs> any way. I just happened to have spoken to a stone man for three hours and it was great. I loved it, but it didn't change anything. So what was the kind of that last w- week, I guess, or last few days really yeah. of the fringe? Cause it's right at the end that it all oh, kind of absolutely. happens. Isn't it? What I found funniest was, so that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like I say, my ticket sales were like, less than 20 for each day and then suddenly my weekend sold out and I was like I was here all along isn't it (laughs) isn't it funny how suddenly just because I had that show was as good as it was without the nomination you know what I mean but then suddenly it gets given the like the pat on the head of being like this this show gets a goal and I was like oh now now you all want to fucking come see it (laughs) (laughs) but it was just such a lovely because I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, I'm not, but my first two shows, I was at the Pleasance. My first run sold out by the halfway point and my second show sold out within the first couple of days. So this was the first mm-hmm. year I'd had, but I was in a room like twice the size this year. I was in a much bigger room. So this was the first experience I'd had of not selling out every day. And it was really good for us because I was like, you don't need to sell out every day to have a mm-hmm. good show. And then suddenly I watched these shows that had had such low, t- 20 ticket sales in a 105-seater room, suddenly just selling out because I had the nomination. And yeah. it was quite a weird thing in a way because I was like, well, this show was as good a show as it was without that sellout. But it just proves that suddenly someone gives you a bit recognition and that opens the door and people go, oh, hang on, hang on. We hadn't heard about her, but now she's got this accolade. And for me, that's I still feel like that six-year-old kid who can't get her voice heard even with the things I've done in comedy, I feel still like it's a real struggle for me to get my voice heard. Like, I'm not all over telly and I'm not in the writer's rooms and that's the kind of stuff I really want to be doing. And I feel like for years I've been like bang, bang, banging on the door till my knuckles are bleeding. And how I described it to someone the other day is I was like, all I can hope is that this nomination maybe just opens some of those doors. And I know they won't open immediately, but I feel like the the nomination is someone kind of pointing at you going have you heard her she's pretty good like have you have you listened to her have you tried her and I'm like oh I just need one person to open a door for us and go do you want to come in and that's a seat at the table basically I'm hoping I get just one seat at one table a hundred percent and that's the power of of these things again in my music days I always used everyone used to look at south by southwest like you go out there there's so many opportunities to become huge but yeah similar to there are so many opportunities but also there's so many people vying for those same opportunities so as a as a punter like it is hard you're kind of scrolling through this long list of all the people performing you're like well what why shall i go and and see this it can come down to walking past a poster or the the smallest weirdest things and a nomination is the prime example of that because as you say it made everyone go well i was looking at three things yeah 
I'll see that one. And that's why yeah, I was I mean, even... fuck, in, in my case, I was looking at a bakery for <laughs> it. Oh, I'll go to that now. So it's, it's mad how those things can Absolutely. just make you go, well, there you go. Here's something to spend my time on. But and- it's funny you should say that as well. Because So my first show was quarter past five-ish. Second show was about seven o'clock. 2020, I said I wanted to do daytime. And I am notorious for not being an early riser, not being like mm. a daytime person. I've always loved working in bars and restaurants. Like I come alive yeah. at night. And I said in 2020, I want a daytime slot. And I got off at half past 12, which is ultimately what I got off at this year. And people are like, what you're doing? A daytime slot like you. And I said, it's tactical because as someone who loves comedy and also treats the fringe like, you know, a punter, there's never anything I want to see between 12 and 3. Never. Yeah, or well, not necessarily never, but there's a lot less to choose from. And I said, yeah. I want to give it a go for one year of being on at half past 12. And even if the only reason someone comes to see me is they're going, mm, well, all else I was going to do is go to a bakery. So I either go to a bakery yeah. or I go take a chance on yeah. this. And I really do think that's what got people in for me this year. The fact that there was stood, you know, I was, the monkey barrels are quite near the Royal Mile, quite central. Yeah. People stood going, what's on now? Oh, this, this girl's on at half past 12. She would go take a punt on her. And I think I had a lot of people just taking a chance because there was not necessarily anything else on. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I, I did it. I think it's a really good idea and it's, it's, it's really clever. Obviously, it's a risk because there's more people about in the evenings yeah. and so on and so forth. But it's balancing that risk. As you say, it's going, right, there will be, it is busier then. But as said, also, all of the big guys are on exactly. <laughs> at 7 or yeah. 8 o'clock. And cool, people are going to go and choose that. I think that's a really wise idea of going where you were located and all those things. And, well, look, hopefully I'll catch people who are about, who've Absolutely. just got a pizza from that stall across the way and, yeah. and are now knocking about and looking for something to do. It works perfectly. I had someone bring a Greg's into my show. He'd got, he'd got off the it. train, got his Greg's, come and watch, and then he was going to see, I think, Josh Pugh after me. Yeah. So yeah. he had his, like, Greg's in between me and Josh. And I, I was like, what a perfect... Get your Greg's. Come see, yeah. come see a daytime show. Have your little snack. Go see someone else. Dream day. <laughs> On with your life. I, I love it. Well, before we wrap things up, can you tell me a little bit about your dog? You mentioned your dog <gasps> yes. in the show. I was gutted I wasn't there at, at the oh, weekend show where the where dog was he? coming along. Ralph, shall I go get him? I'll go get yeah, him. Yeah, go and get Ralph. Right. I'll tangle myself from all these wires. He's suspiciously quiet. Where are you? <laughs> You're not in there. Oh, you're here. This is oh, Ralph. Oh, look at Ralph. He is a very good boy. He's a very good boy. Look at him, adorable little moustache. Got one, one little white paw. Oh, you tired. Hello. Big yawn. He smells a bit like a tart because he's just been bathed, so he smells... Brilliant. But he's very... He is the goodest boy. I love him so much. I got him... I'll put you there. You go there. I love it. He's adorable. I got him last January. I've always wanted a dog. And this is yeah. true. Like, never had a dog growing up. Like, my mum, like, was the kind of woman who liked her carpets clean. When I got Ralph, she was like, hey, he's not coming in my house. Of course he does. But um, we never had a pet growing <laughs> up. My sister was asthmatic, so it was just never, like, wise to have animals in the house. When I lived in London with my ex, I'd be like, oh, can we get a dog? Like, please, can we get a dog? It'll make us more sociable. I'll go outside. I'll have company. And he was like, oh, I can't have a dog in London. So when I moved into my own place, the first thing I did was get a dog. And they change your life. Like, they absolutely 100%. change your life. My boyfriend, new boyfriend, current boyfriend, hopefully only boyfriend, <laughs> has moved in now. And even the other day, he was like, the bond you have with your dog is really quite yeah. something. And I was like, well, it was just me and him for a year. Like, we're very 
very close. I love him. I'm 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 reasonably soppy with my dog in general, but when it's just me and him in the house, yeah. Oh, it's through the roof. I was look because he he lives with my partner, so but the last couple of days I've had him here on, on my own. He's gone back now, but and we just spent most of the day. lounging on the sofa snuggling up and watching tv and i'm i'm terrible at taking time off and not you know always trying to be productive but this was like my partner would get home and be like what have you two have been up to i honestly haven't moved we've just mainly been cuddling we've gone out for a walk we've done this and that but just just hanging out and i found with ralph it was someone to like because i was living on my own and stuff and i'd never lived on my own before i'd always lived with friends or with like you know a partner and i would just sit with ralph and i'd be like i'd I'd have had a bad day at work and i'd be like i don't think i'm ever gonna get to do stand-up again ralph i'd be like but your mummy was so funny right like i know you don't believe me (laughs) but she would make all the boys and girls laugh and i would like sort of talk about like my fears and my worries to the dog and in a way it probably did as good because I was getting the things that would normally be stuck in your head yeah, you, out to something and I would just sit and chat but then it meant when people like when the world opened and people started coming to my flat I kind of forgot I did that and they'd be like are you just talking at the dog and I was like oh yeah I tell him everything I tell him and everything I love I love that you clearly wanted to say to someone and you backtracked to say something exactly. to not sound too crazy but definitely someone it's absolutely fine so so to wrap things up what's ahead what's your your plans are you taking the show on the road at all i know you've got a big show coming up yeah i'm doing like a very little tour because i booked the tour in about me and i was quite concerned that i'm very i'm very self-aware as a comedian i know i've not done a lot of telly i've done i think like three bits of telly in four years and the last one was two years ago. It was September 2020, the last time I did something. So I was like, I'm not daft. I know that the landscape has changed, but telly does help sell tickets, and I don't have a lot of that. Um, things like podcasts, and then I'm wanting to start my own podcast, but I was like, I don't, it's not like I've got like a hit podcast. I was like, I don't know if I'll sell tickets. Um, so I very tentatively booked a very sort of small tour. I've done the first two. The third is going to be rescheduled because of the train strike, so I can't get there, which is the Oof. the fun life of a comedian. But I was like, no, nope, I'd rather just move it. It's fine. Um, so I'm doing like Cambridge, Liverpool, Nottingham, Leicester, Newcastle, Glasgow, Edinburgh. I've already done Manchester and York, well, Salford and York. And then I've got a run at Soho Theatre, which I'm very excited about. I love it. Uh, when's the Soho Theatre So that's the 7th till the 10th of December, which I'm really, Brilliant. really... Because I remember when I first moved to London, felt like, obviously, I don't live there anymore, but when I did move there, really struggled to fit in. And I remember going to Soho Theatre for the first time, and it was like that little sort of 12-year-old kid who'd started doing drama and loved the lights and the buzz, and I stood in Soho, and I was like, this is your home. This is where yeah. one day you will do a show here, and I did. I've done my other two shows there. And all I wanted, genuinely... When I sat before this fringe, I was like, as long as I get a Soho run, that's all I want. Even just one night. One night is still a run. Like, I want to get a Soho run. So I'm really happy. Yes. I love it. I, I, I love it. I can't wait. And as said, to any listeners, I can't I can't recommend it enough as a show. You really, I came out of it texting mates, ringing people tweeting about it and all sorts of stuff because it just yeah it, I know it, I was so buzzing it really I got caught me tweet. off guard I was sitting in the, the monkey barrel bottle and I hadn't seen you leave because I'm very bad at eye contact so like I don't 
Sometimes I'm looking people but not looking at them, especially when I'm jiggling me little bucket asking for money as a working class person. I hate that, so I try and avoid eye contact at all costs. But I was sitting in the monkey barrel bar, or might be in the city cafe next door, and I had me phone, and I was like, no, no. And my boyfriend was like, what? I was like, no, Scroobius Pip has been in my show. And he was like, has he? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, no. <laughs> I was proper I buzzing. It. I love it. I love it. And yeah, it was, as I said, it was an absolute highlight. So um, I recommend everyone come and catch you around the country and on that Soho run in particular. Thank you for taking the time, Thank mate. You. It's been a bloody pl- a pleasure, and I look forward to all that's ahead. I want to see you on loads more TV and loads more things, and in writers' rooms and oh, all of these yes. things because I think you're a voice that is needed. And yeah. uh, this current show, it is what it is, really shows the the nuance of your writing and your approach. Yes, it's a working class voice, but it's not a this is the typical working class approach and all these different things. I think you really approach things in an interesting and honest way and you kind of hold yourself to account on things. Exactly. If if you know what I mean, to make sure you're doing it the the right way and you're approaching it the the right way. And I think it, yeah, it works wonderfully. So thank you you for your time and and for your work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Lauren Patterson. A fucking joy, right? I'm sorry for my language, but come on. A fucking joy, think you'll find. Hope you all enjoyed that. As said, I can't wait to see all that's ahead from Lauren. Her show was my big surprise of the Fringe, right? Jordan was obviously amazing and is reaping all the benefits, but I knew about Jordan. I'm a little hipster. I was already into Jordan. Rob Alton is another one I rave about all the time. He's always a fringe highlight, but I've been seeing Rob there for years. Lauren was the show that I went into blind and was just blown away by. Absolutely blown away by. So I said, I fully recommend you all grab tickets for her Soho Theatre run, beginning of December, and the rest of the run, you know, around the country. So yeah, thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week. As ever, we're getting dangerously close to it's a drunk cast season, aren't we? Oof, boy, oh boy. And there's been a lot going on in all of our lives, so it's going to be a hell of a drunk cast this year. But um, that's a little way away. Oh, happy October, guys. I've just realised it's the first time I've chatted to you in October. Welcome to the spooky month. Um, I hope you're all enjoying it. Yeah, I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.